1 Peter chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the one another commands in the New Testament. And today we're looking at showing humility toward one another. 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to, we're going to focus on, chapter, on verses 5 to 7, but I want to read verses 1 through 11 to get a bit of context. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into it together. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the, grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire to change us by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you want to make us like Jesus so that we can enjoy you forever. Lord, you want to make us as a church family into a group that demonstrates the goodness of who Jesus is. Lord, we know that this is the whole reason you, you had your servants write down these words and to give us these kinds of commands is that we would be transformed, that we would be able to point past ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, who desires to save the world. We pray, Lord, that you meet us here and we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. amen. So as a, as, a, as a biblical scholar, what I did this week is Google this phrase. That's a joke, because scholars don't Google, really. I Googled examples of humility, and this is what popped up. should be on the screen. Here's, our, here's examples of humility. Letting someone ahead of you in the line when you're in a hurry is an act of humility. Cleaning the bathroom in your office, even though you own the company, is an example of humility. An athlete who credits his success to his teammates, even though he has great skill, shows humility. Those are all pretty good examples, I thought, because there's something there in those examples of humility that does kind of echo what we see humility to be in the New Testament. There's something there that's good. Humility isn't less than those things 
that were displayed. Those those kind of examples that we found on Google. Humility isn't less than that. But biblical humility is much, much more than that. See, when we talk about, when the Bible Bible talks about humility, it's more than just what we do, it's why we do it. It's about a mindset, it's about a purpose. In fact, it's interesting, the word for humility is a word that means to put yourself under an authority. That's the root of it. It's not this idea that you're putting yourself down. It's not an idea that you're trying just to simply adjust your view of yourself, like don't have too high of a view of yourself. It is that, but again, it's more than that. It's it's about us saying, God, I want to put myself under your good authority. I I want to be the, the, the kind of person, I want to have the kind of behavior that shows that it's good to be under you. And so with this command that we're going to look at in 1 Peter, there's really, I think, two purposes we're going to see in these verses for God's calling us to show humility one to another. So we're going to talk about what that looks like, how it happens, but mostly we're going to look at why. Here's the first thing. Humility demonstrates God's goodness to God's people. Now we give you those little handouts so you can kind of pay attention and fill them out if you want. Some people love those things. Other people, well done, Sarah. See, Sarah's a, she's a studious one. Some people just think, ah, eh, whatever. But, you know, they're there for you if you want to use them. Humility demonstrates God's goodness to God's people. And what we see in, in, in the kind of the middle section of chapter 5, verse 5, is this, this we get a picture here when, when, when Peter writes, clothe yourselves, when he writes that, that what was happening is Peter is recalling the example of Jesus in John chapter 13. You guys know the story when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. This is the night before he's going to be crucified. And here's what we read in John chapter 13. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father, <laughs> excuse me, that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now the reason we think Peter is is thinking back to this scene in John chapter 13 is this phrase, close yourself, literally means put on a servant's apron. Because in a sense, that's what he's doing. And, and when John writes about it in John chapter 13, there is a sense of awe. And I wonder if, if Peter had the same sense of awe, that this is the one that they knew to be God's chosen king. This is the one that they saw was not just a man, but something supernatural, something divine about him. They knew this even before he was crucified and resurrected. And here he is, he's supposed to be their king and their lord, and he is. And what does he do? He disrobes, he humbles himself and disrobes. In a sense, closes, clothes himself like a servant, puts on a slave apron, and he washes their dirty, stinky feet. That's what he does. And you get a picture here that, that Peter's thinking about this, that he's thinking about what Jesus did and thinking this is kind of what we, we need to do in, in the same way. But I, I also wonder if, if he was thinking about uh, the, the same kind of thing that John was thinking about. The fact that now this side of the, the, the cross and the resurrection and Jesus' ascension and 
Jesus sending the Spirit upon his people. That side of it, when Peter writes this, that he's thinking about, man, Jesus knew, he knew <coughs> that the Father had already given him all authority. He, he knew he was God's chosen king. He knew already that he had come from God. He had existed. God the Son's always existed, the Bible teaches. And that he was going back to God. Even the night that he's going to be crucified, he knew that this was going to be taking place. And so these humble actions, listen, they were flowing from his right understanding of a right relationship with his father. He wasn't serving these guys and washing their feet because he was kind of like, well, I've been getting all the glory recently. Maybe I should do something humble. Well, I, I, you know, I just want to just kind of give them an example of what they're going to need to do. It's my last night. I might as well. Now, what John makes really clear is that when Jesus humbles himself and sets an example for us of what humility looks like, he does so from the, the perspective of knowing exactly who he is in relationship to his Father God. This is really important. It's important because, as we're going to see right now in Philippians 2, that the actions of Jesus are revealing to us the goodness of God. And part of that goodness, listen, is humility. Philippians chapter 2, listen to this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Though Christ Jesus was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position as a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Now you need to understand something that's really important. Jesus being born as a human being was not Jesus trying to become humble. He was born as a human being because he already is humble. Do you remember if you think back in the, the first message we had in the series and we, we were talking about uh, the need for us to love God first. And we were talking about the reality that love is not something just that is done, done to us or that we do to other, others. But love is what defines who God is. God defines himself by love because our God in the New Testament is his three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit experiencing perfect love. Listen, the way the Son expresses love to the Father is through humility. Even though he's equal with God, always has been, always will be, he expresses in, in the Trinity, he defers to the Father. This is really important. It's really important because that deference says something about love. And it's important for us to see this because this is radically countercultural right now. Right now, everything is about equality. Now, don't get me wrong. Equality in a social sense can be a really good thing. But what we have to understand here is that before there was anything else, there has always been God, the three-in-one God, who has always been love. He creates the universe out of love, and he orders it as a, in a way that reflects who he is. God orders his creation with deference, with humility. With limitations. So when, we, when we're talking about humility, we're talking about, as we see it in Jesus, 
Yes, actions, real actions, taking a low place, doing the, the grunt work that maybe nobody else wants to do. But it's more than that. It's about the, 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 the goodness of God being revealed and part of that goodness being his humility. Humility isn't a punishment because you were too cocky or cheeky. Humility is a character trait of our creator God that he calls us to emulate, that he calls us to follow. You ever think about God as being humble? It, it seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? He's God. He has all the power. Why would you be humble if you have all the power? Because it's good. Because he's love. Don't forget, God didn't need anything when he made the universe. He made the universe with the purpose of making us to enjoy it and him in it. Why? He's good. He put us in making us even above himself. He didn't need us. He did it because he's good. Now, it's important for us to see as well because there, there is this, we're going to get into to verse 6 in a bit, don't worry. But there is this reality that when he says, all of you clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another, we'll talk more about what that looks like towards one another in a second, but he also gives this warning. He's quoting in verse 5 from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. He's, he's quoting from the Greek version. So if you look up in your Bibles, which are translated from the Hebrew, it won't, won't actually match this exactly, but you'll, you'll get the gist. Here, here's what he says. For, here's the reason. Here's a motivation for us to, humble, be, to show humility to one another. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this God who's humble also shows us that uh, humility is not about, it's not about, listen, it's not just about sort of, it's not just about deference. It's not about being afraid or being timid and afraid to say something's wrong. That's not humility. Being afraid to call something out is not humility. Because our humble God, he opposes something. Specifically, he opposes Pride. Why? Because God opposes what keeps people from knowing his goodness. What do we mean by pride? Are we talking about like someone who, who uh, you know, runs and does the skid across their knees when they score a goal? Yeah! Is that the part we're talking about? No. Are we talking about that feeling of accomplishment when you've done, you've met a goal? No, even the Bible says that's a good thing. Pride is this. Listen to this. I'm going to give you four ways that we're talking about how, what, who, how God identifies the proud. Who are the proud? Listen. The proud trust their own definition of God. That's the proud. I think God's like, but God didn't say that. Yeah, but I think when we say my God would never do what the scripture clearly says he does do and is going to do, when we say that, that's the Pinnacle of pride. Because who are we to say what God is going to do and not going to do? God is the one who says what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. God's the one who says what he's like. Now, the truth is, often when we say, my God's not like that, it's because we know that we're kind of responding to some bad character, picture, someone else's bad ideas about God. But pride, listen, pride trusts your own definition. We shouldn't trust your own definition. We should go say, God, what do you say about yourself? Also, listen, the proud refuse to thank God for the good in their lives. 
They might say, oh, I'm, I have this good in my life and I'm, I'm thankful that I have this good, but who are you thankful to? Who are you thankful to? The proud, listen, the proud assume they know better than God. Well, God might have said this, but I'm saying this is what we really ought to do. And lastly, the proud believe they can be their own God. So when when the Bible says that God resists the proud, he's talking about this. Not someone who's a little bit cheeky or someone who's just celebrating or someone's happy about a goal being accomplished. Talking about someone who is actually saying, I want to replace God. Now, where do I get this? Lots of places in Scripture deal with this. Every Scripture in the Old New Testament that deals with idolatry is pointing to something like this. But just, I'll read again just a couple of verses from Romans chapter 1 in the New Living Translation. It says, yes, they, that's speaking of mankind, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols, made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. There's even a story in the Old Testament when the Philistines were being punished by God. and They were getting these, they had were attacked by kind of rats and they were getting these kind of infectious tumors. They're, they're, they know they're being punished by God of some, some God. They don't really know the God of Israel, but they're thinking maybe he's the one punishing them because they had the Ark of the Covenant and stuff. And what happens, you know what they do? They make a golden tumor and a golden rat and they bow down to it. We can make idols even out of our problems. This is kind of what we do. This is our default position. Now listen, listen. If we want to show humility to each other, we need to recognize how how much God has called us to, or how much God has been patient with our pride. How patient he is with us. You see, the reason God opposes this is because God, as we said in the very first study, remember, God cannot give us anything better than what? Himself. Himself. And so when we, in our collective wisdom, quote unquote, try to give a substitute for God, God says, I oppose that. I'm against that. That keeps people from knowing me. And I made them to know me. See, God calls us to humility, to show humility towards each other so that that humility can demonstrate how good God really is. So when we don't do that, you know what we're doing? We're blinding people to the goodness of God. Now, this is another thing, though, about humility. Humility isn't just about uh, demonstrating God's goodness to God's people. Humility also, listen, demonstrating humility is also receiving God's help through God's people. Receiving God's help through God's people. Because one of the things that we are slow to do in our pride is actually admit we need help. I struggle with this. I have to be in a pretty desperate state before I ask somebody to help me. In fact, to be honest, I rarely ask people to help me. What usually happens is people see how pathetic things are going for me. They go, please let me help you. Before it gets worse, please let me help you. You know what that is? 
pride. But when I humble myself and I admit I can't do what I need to do on my own and I ask for help from God's people, you know what happens? God shows himself strong. He meets the needs. Now here's what we have to understand again about humility. We're going to look at several verses. First, let's look at verse 6 again of uh, 1, 1 Peter 5. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore. You know, if you're going to be clothed with yourselves with humility towards each other, then you're going to need to humble yourself, therefore. Notice what it says. Under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, this, this phrase, under the mighty hand of God, may not seem like anything big to you, but actually, the people who would have read this, those who were, as we saw in the context, these people that Peter's writing to, who are suffering radically for their faith. They were being marginalized. They were being persecuted. They were suffering economically. They were suffering emotionally and relationally. It was a really tough season. He was writing to these guys who were just kind of trying to hold on to their faith in Jesus through very difficult times, trying to encourage them that suffering is, unfortunately, part of the Christian experience, but God will use that suffering for good. When he writes to them, listen, he's writing to them to, to learn how to trust God through that suffering. And so when he says to them, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he's reminding them of when God's people suffered in the past. He's reminding them of the stories they know of the book of Exodus. Anybody seen Prince of Egypt? Hey, who's read the book of Exodus? Let me, let's, go, let's start there. Okay, good. Who saw the movie? Okay. Not quite exactly accurate, but still entertaining, right? But, here, but here's the thing. In the book of Exodus, what do you have? We see God's people, the Israelites, they are in Egypt for 400 years, going from just kind of being delivered from famine to after 400 years, a million people group of slaves. And they're crying out to their God, when is God going to deliver us? We're suffering. And the Bible is really clear in the book of Exodus that God does that. That God, when he would recall Exodus to his people, he'd say, it was with a mighty hand that I brought you out of Egypt. And so when Peter writes, humble yourself under the mighty hand. This, don't, don't picture, humble yourself, God's going to squish you with his mighty hand if you don't humble yourself. No, no. He's saying, put yourself under the same hand that delivered your people in the past. Trust the God who delivers his people. Submit yourself to his mighty hand. That's humility. Now, with this, we need to understand, humility is, and we're going to see this from Matthew 18, humility is a mutual, childlike dependency. Listen to what Jesus says about humility in Matthew 18. He says, at that time, the disciples came to him saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called to him a child and put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, the disciples say, who's the greatest? Jesus says, let's talk about who gets in. And where it starts with, you have to become like a child. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is not saying Children are sweet and innocent and always humble. Man, I got kids. I just, it's not the way it is. That's not the way they were. Even when they're super young and super cute, they're still super cute, but when they were super young, the truth is that they weren't always humble. They were stubborn and prideful. That's not the point. The point is not that they are the picture of humility. The point is they're humbling themselves as dependent creatures. Children are dependent upon adults 
to make sure they're safe and provided for. That's what makes them children. They're dependents. And so what, what, what Jesus is saying here is, look, there is no greatness in God's kingdom without this childlike dependency. So part of us showing humility one to another. Part of this, listen, is trying to be examples to each other of a childlike dependency. Do kids understand what's going to happen with their futures? No, most of us as adults understand what's going to happen with our futures. But kids even more so. In fact, you know what? Most of the time kids don't really care that much about their futures. There's a little bit more of that now, unfortunately, because with all the talk about, about environmental crises and all the issues with COVID, there's been more anxiety among kids that are like under 12 than there has ever been before. Kids are hopeless about the future. And it's really sad. But that's not what childlikeness usually is. Childlikeness is supposed to be a time when you know, I don't know what's going on. I get scared easy, but there's mom and there's dad. I'm going to run to them. I depend on them. I trust they will take care of me. That's childlike dependency. Now, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 18, listen. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and he'd be drowned to the depths of the sea. There's a happy thought. But can we see here, listen, that, that Jesus takes it personally, how we relate to one another as children. Mutually, childlike, mutual, childlike dependency. This is humility. We, 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 we don't, we're, we're so aware that the person next to us is God's child. We're so aware that the person next to us is someone who's valuable to our Father that in humility we say, look, I need to trust God to serve you. You need to trust God to serve me. Let's go to Dad together. This is humility. You know, <clears throat> I used to joke when I first moved to England that what's going to happen to me is I'm going to get uh, deported for violence. Because when we lived in London, man, there were all these kids that were just really like, like teenagers that were really rough and really rude, mouthing off to old people on the bus. And just, just I wasn't used to that. I'm from small town America. And I'm like, Somebody's going to box that kid behind the ears. What's going on? And so then I used to joke and think, I'm going to hit some chav and I'm going to get stabbed and then I'm going to get in trouble for, for, for doing this and I'm going to be disqualified. And I used to joke about this. Now, now here's the thing. By the grace of God, I'm not going to do that. And I'll tell you, that the thing that though I have to say as a dad, if my kids feel threatened, man, all that violence comes back. All that desire to say, you will not threaten my children. Now, again, it's not my place to, to act on that. It would be sin for me to act on that. But I think if you know, you know what I'm talking about, especially you guys that are dads, right? You know that feeling of someone's trying to hurt my kid. Man, I'm going to protect them. And, and, and what Jesus is kind of saying here about us being mutually childlike dependent people is like, listen, we need to treat each other with that, that dependency and that value. You know that dad doesn't like it when we don't get along. Dad wants us to trust him. He takes it seriously, how we, takes it personally, how we relate to one another. 
So this is humility. It's this mutual childlike dependency. And so it's, we're, we're learning to receive God's help as we learn to be these mutually, these mutual childlike dependents. But also, listen, humility is helping one another experience God's care. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. Right before Jesus, it talks about Jesus humbling himself in obedience to God for our sake. Here's the exhortation that will then uh, refer to what Jesus did. It says this in Philippians 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's that mindset? We just read about him humbling himself. So humility, listen, if we're going to if we're going to show humility to each other, humility is me looking at you and saying, you know what, I got problems, you got problems, we both need the Father to help us with our problems, but you know what, right now, yours is more important than mine. Now, do you see how this is difficult because, and how this does take humility because how do we decide whose problem needs to get taken care of? There's that humility of saying, I, I need to put yours above mine, but there's also that humility that needs to say, I'm really in a bad place and receiving the help when we need the help. See, the reality is, this is, again, more than just like, please, go in line first. This is more just like, yeah, we serve well as a team. I, I can't take credit. All of us get credit. This is more than just what society thinks humility looks like. It's deeper than this. It's about us demonstrating how it is good to be under God's care. And it's about learning to receive that care through one another. Being humble enough to receive that care. Now, lastly, we want to talk about how humility should be expressed first in local church relationships. Now, there's something powerful when God's people are humble before those who don't yet believe. Very powerful. A skill that I'm still learning is the skill of being able to listen to unbelievers' arguments well, try to tell their arguments back to them in the way that they, they know that I get where they're coming from before I bring the gospel to bear on that. It's a, it's a skill that I'm still learning I've been a Christian for 35 years. I'm still learning that skill. But it's great. It's, it's a way that we demonstrate humility to those who don't yet know the humble king. But there's also this, this reality that, that if we're going to learn to show humility to unbelievers, I think it starts with us learning to show humility to one another as believers. To humble ourselves before each other. It's not thinking more highly of ourselves as we should. Now, there's three ways I believe this humility comes to pass and, or comes out, and those three ways are all connected to unity. There's a connection between us humbling ourselves and us demonstrating the oneness of God in unity. The first is this. We see in, in chapter 5, verse 5, the first part of the, of the section says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, this means one of two things. It could mean in the context, which is obviously about uh, elders in the church or leaders in the church. It could be in the context, make sure that you, you, you that aren't leaders are submitting to leaders. 
Or it could be that there's younger leaders that need to learn to submit to the older leaders. Or it could just simply be that you younger people should submit to the older people because they have more experience. Either way, there's something here going on where there's a, a humility that wants to, listen, honor a functional unity that God calls us to obedience and submission in our relationships as part of his created order. The author of Hebrews says it plainly, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's an account to God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you get a sense there that the author of Hebrews is acknowledging it can be hard to be a church leader, but also that church leaders don't have all the power that maybe historically they've exercised. Because if they're groaning, they're just, that means that people don't always do what they say. And I've you know, been a pastor for 30 years. People don't always do what I say. It can be hard. But this also talks about more than just, the idea here is more than just congregants and pastors. Okay, We read this in Ephesians 5.21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to look up Ephesians chapter 5 and see where this verse is, you'll see it's kind of sandwiched between two sections. The first one starts in in verse 15 of chapter 5, and it's talking about what does it look like to walk in wisdom. We're going to talk about some of that stuff in coming weeks. But then right after this, right after Paul writes, be submitting to one another in in reverence for Christ, he talks about different ways that, that submission happens. He talks about wives submitting to husbands. He talks about children submitting to parents. He talks about slaves submitting to masters. Now, we're not going to get into all the dynamics of those different relationships. Don't worry. And these things can be difficult to apply. I recognize this. And we do need to update to our current culture. There's some of that as well. But what we can't get away from is that when Paul says submitting to one another, he's saying there's times when you are the one being submitted to and there's times when you are the one who's doing the submitting in these relationships. And here's what's interesting. It would have been very common in the early church specifically to be there's a guy who is an elder who is a slave and his master goes to his church. So at, at the workhouse, you might say, or when they're working on, on, the, on the ranch or the home, wherever it was, that slave is submitted to his master. But when they go to church, they're talking about how to move forward as a church together. The, the master submits to the slave. The Bible seems really clear to me that there were women deaconesses, women who were deacons. We have women deacons at this church. So you can have a situation where a woman sum, submits to her husband at home, he lets her kind of make the lead, follow the lead. But then whatever she's over as a deacon, distributing food, whatever it is, and he joins that, guess what he does? He has to submit to how she's organizing that and pushing it forward. This is the idea of mutual submission. It's not, it's not an absolute mutual submission as popular as that is right now. And the reason it's not that, listen, is because it doesn't work. It doesn't function. There's no functional unity with that. But there is, listen, a functional unity, especially among God's people, when we recognize, hey, sometimes i got to be the one who submits, and sometimes I'm the one that people submit to. So I'm the uh, lead pastor of the church. I have specific responsibilities to have that lead pastor, and with those responsibilities comes a specific authority. But I serve with a board of trustees who can fire me if they want. 
Some days they want to, some days they don't. There's always a place for mutual submission. And this is bigger than just institutional accountability. This is about, listen, in the body of Christ, it's about us modeling the humility of God. It's about us showing how good our God is as we help one another. So humility honors a functional unity. But also, listen, humility leads to a doctrinal unity. You guys know what I mean by that? By doctrine or doctrinal, it means that which has to do with what we believe, what we teach and what we believe. Now, a church like Servants, if you haven't gone very long, you'll find out soon there's a radical variety of ideas here. So there are people that, we, we don't just have diversity when it comes to ethnicity or social economic backgrounds. We have diversity of church backgrounds at Servants. We joke sometimes as, as trustees, we're like, it's, it's, it's completely, we don't joke, we, we, we're in awe of that. It's, it's just a, a, really a, a work of God that we've never had a church split in 16 years, even though we're radically diverse people. And the, I think the reason is because we try to keep it about Jesus. But I also think the reason is because, you know what? As much as you guys are an odd lot, you're a pretty humble lot. I think there's a sense that what I see is when people come to servants, as they kind of muck in, they, they, they want to pursue Christ-likeness. And part of that is a humbling of ourselves. Let me give you some examples, right? The first way we humble ourselves and this, this humility leads to a doctrinal unity is, is simply humbling ourselves before the word of God. What does James say in James chapter 1? He says, therefore, getting rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent in all human lives, right? He says, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Don't merely listen to the word so to deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So when we're humble before the scriptures, we say, okay, God, this is your word. John might get it right. John might get it wrong. Other guys might get it right. Other guys might get it wrong. But this is your word. And so it's your word that first and foremost we are submitted to. That's the first step towards doctrinal unity. I have all kinds of time and patience for people, even at servants, who disagree with my convictions or my interpretations, especially on secondary issues. Got no problem with that. As long as you're getting your convictions from the Scripture. If they're not from the Scripture, well then I'm going to lovingly and hopefully patiently, hopefully, say, Let, let's go back to what God says about this. Because it's what God says, not what I say that's important. But also we see this exemplified with the Apostle Paul. In, in, when he was ministering to the Corinthian church, there was a the division in the Corinthian church because some were going, oh, we really like Paul. And others were going, no, 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 we like Apollos. He was a way better speaker. And others were going, no, no, we like Peter. He's down the earth fisherman. We like Peter. And there was this division about who they wanted to hear, who they thought was the best pastor that they had in their history. And so Paul deals with that division. And one of the things he says about all of them, he says this, listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with mysteries God has revealed, so that you may learn from us the meaning of this saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in, in, in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For what makes you different than anyone else? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You understand what Paul's getting at here? He's saying, listen, gifts glorify the giver, not the recipient. 
If someone gives something to me that's meant just to be a gift, even if it's a thank you gift, it's really about what, how, how good they are to give that to me. The fact that I have it isn't like, look at me, I got the gift. That's stupid. It's the person who gave the gift that gets the glory, so to speak. The giver of every good gift is God himself. And including in those gifts are the people that lead the church, or the people that bring teaching to us. And they're gifts. That's all they are. So picking one against the other is taking our eyes off the giver of gifts and putting it on the gift itself. You guys following me? It's when we say, God, what doctrine should we have? It's when we say, God, what does your word say about this issue or that issue? That's when we move towards a doctrinal unity. It requires humility. We have to be teachable. So, so I, I've been teaching the Bible uh, since, uh, gosh, 1990. How many of you guys were born in 1990? Yeah, about a fourth of you. <laughs> so I've been teaching the Bible for longer than most of you guys have been alive. I do, I have a, I have a, I went to Bible college. I have a, a degree in theology from a Bible college. I later on did a, an undergrad degree in religion. I'm now doing a post-graduate post, uh, uh, lectures in biblical counseling. I've taught through the New Testament, all the way through the New Testament, twice, verse by verse, through the whole New Testament twice, some books three and four times. And all that means nothing. It means nothing if I'm wrong. So how do you know if I'm wrong? Well, because I have a different opinion. No. We, we move towards what's right when it comes to truth by what? Going back to God's word and just knowing that those who study and teach are gifts, but they're not the giver. God's the giver. Are you guys following me? Can you see how that requires humility? Humility on my part and others who teach and lead to go, we might get it wrong. Humility on your part to say, we need all that God has to say from his word, and we're going to go back to his word and test all the things that we're being told. You guys following me on this? Lastly, humility... Also, listen, it doesn't just honor functional unity. It doesn't just lead towards doctrinal unity. Humility maintains relational unity. That's how we relate well to each other. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, he's actually in prison when he writes this, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's the calling into the faith, the calling into God's family. Not, not a ministry calling, but a, a calling to follow Jesus and trust him. Walk in a, wor- a manner worthy of that calling. He says, notice, with all humility. Now the word for humility there is a humble mindset or a humble attitude. He says, and with gentleness. The word for gentleness speaks of a hu- humble actions. With patience, bearing with one another. This is talking about being humble about human families, both our own and those that we, we're in a church family with. People fail. We have to bear with each other. That we do this, listen, in love, eager, notice, to maintain, not create, but maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we stay unified? Humility. We say, we want God's goodness to be seen, so we're going to humble ourselves. Now I'm going to ask the 
music team to come back up. We read earlier, right, Paul, or Peter writes in, in the end of verse 5 that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. But listen, it's not where the sentence ends, but he gives grace to the humble. See, here, here's the reality. We need to see Jesus as both our example and our provider of humility. How did you get to a place where you knew you needed Jesus? Because the Spirit of Christ drew you to Jesus. The Spirit of Christ did, as, as Jesus said he would, the Spirit uh, convicted, convicted you of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. You were convicted of your need, and you thought, man, I, I need to know this Jesus. That's called grace. It's called grace. When you, when you finally thought, yes, I need Jesus, and you cried out to him. What happened to you? You were given new life. You were born again. Big word for it is regenerated. New life. Where'd that come from? Grace. God humbled you to give you grace. God gave you more grace. As you continue to walk with God, guess what you get? More grace. It's funny how often we'll pray, God, give me more faith. Faith of a mustard seed's enough. How about God give me more grace? I need grace to be humble. I need grace to see how important humility is to you. I, I, I need grace, Lord, to, to see that I'm a fellow sinner with fellow sinners. I need grace so I can learn how to give and receive humility and help. I want to humble myself. I want to put myself under you, God, so that your goodness is seen rather than mine. 